of C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. Now, in our second year of production, where each Thursday we air episodes spotlighting someone in the C-Suite. Sometimes they are Fortune 50 companies. Other times they're perhaps uh, global entrepreneurial efforts. doesn't always have to be the CEO. Sometimes it's the Chief Revenue Officer, Chief Human Resource Officer. Today I'm delighted to be having a conversation with uh, Scott Trench. He is the CEO and President of Bigger Pockets. Bigger Pockets actually is a real estate platform with a variety of tentacles, if you will, podcasts and YouTube channels, networks for real estate investors of all size and level of risk and interest and opportunity from small first-time investors to large, you know, million-dollar portfolio managers. We're interested today to talk to Scott Trench about his own career journey, what Bigger Pockets is doing for real estate investors of all sizes and types. He is an author, he's a podcast host himself, and a real estate investor. Scott Trench, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Scott Miller, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really excited to be here. Our pleasure. In addition to first names in common, we have the crazy weather of you in Denver and me in Utah, where it is both snowing and sunny and warm, strangely at the same time. Scott, glad to have you today. Hey, would you rewind and talk a little bit about your journey? I think that one of the most interesting parts of the podcast is to hear people's paths. Sometimes they're very linear, sometimes they're very calculated, sometimes they're completely serendipitous and unexpected. Would love to have you take a few minutes, remind people of your education, your own professional career journey, and sort of what are you doing now and who and what and how is Bigger Pocket serving this community of real estate like-minded investors and professionals? Sure thing. Yeah, I graduated from Vanderbilt University with a degree in finance and economics in 2013. And I started my career at a Fortune 500 company uh, in August of that year uh, as a financial analyst. And within a few months, I quickly became really uh, intrigued by, maybe even obsessed with, the concept of financial independence. I began following various finance bloggers and platforms, and I really uh, came to adopt mentalities from two in, in particular. One was called Mr. Money Mustache, uh, a financial blogger around frugality. Hey, spend very little, accumulate a lot, you can retire in your early 30s, uh, maybe even your late 20s. And then, of course, another platform that at the, called Bigger Pockets. I was a fan of the platform um, before I ever joined as an employee. And I wanted to marry these two concepts together, this concept of frugality and saving as much as possible for my day job, but then deploying it into real estate investing, which I thought could turbocharge that journey. Uh, in 2014, um, I joined uh, various mastermind groups, continued to save, and I uh, ended the year having joined Bigger Pockets as the then third full-time uh, employee, technical employee at that point in time. And I also closed on my first duplex uh, in 2014. When I joined Bigger Pockets, I was a uh, uh, really a big fan of, I mean, I'm still, I am, I, I was a fan of the, the founder, um, one of the other early employees named Brandon Turner, um, really admired them, was super grateful and happy and lucky to work with them. Um, and had just had a wild ride of, um, you know, seeing, uh, seeing the company grow from, you know, less than a million in revenue at that point in time and less than 100,000 members to 2.8 million uh, members today and tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Um, and over that journey, I really got to see every part of the business evolve uh, and really have my hand in every part of the business. Um, in 2017, uh, our founder at Bigger Pockets stepped away um, for personal reasons, and I became the president of the company and led us through a recapitalization and partnership with a private equity firm called McCarthy Capital. 
Um, and at that point, um, I also, I, uh, another really important uh, person entered my, my career journey here, uh, Mike Zawalski, our chairman and operating partner. And uh, Mike Zawalski was a coach, basically. This is an executive of 30 years. And, you know, I think that that's been one of the, the big advantages in my career is I come in as this president, CEO, I'm 27 years old, but I'm getting a world-class mentor to teach me the ropes and the CEO playbook, which I think a lot of founders struggle to uh, develop because they don't, you know, they may have all the power. They're, they're, uh, you know, majority owners and can't be fired or those types of things. Um, I think that power dynamic really was an enormous advantage to me in developing my, my skill set to get to this point. And over the last five years, I've, um, felt that I've advanced considerably in terms of my CEO toolkit as a result of, of that experience. So that's it in a nutshell, lots of more, more that went in there, but hopefully that's, that's helpful. I'm sure there was Scott, take a few minutes and reorient all of our listeners and viewers to what is money, what is bigger pockets? Who do you serve? Who joins and subscribes? What kind of services do you provide? So everybody has some context for that. Sure. So our, our typical member is someone just like I was uh, 10 years ago, right? Um, someone who's uh, working a full-time job or has a small business um, and wants to become financially independent. Um, these folks want to amass a portfolio, often comprised of real estate and stocks and maybe a small business and use real estate and the cash flow that real estate provides to produce income that gives them the option to retire from pay wage paying work early in life or otherwise build generational wealth. Real estate investors have a lot of problems to face. First is that their friends and family and colleagues are telling them that they're going to lose their shirt like Uncle Joe did in the Great Recession. And so Bigger Pockets first and foremost provides community. Um, there are 17 million investors in this country. Three million of them are hanging out on Bigger Pockets, and they are obviously uh, uh, enthusiasts about the subject, talk about it, acknowledge the risks, but also discuss the benefits and encourage people to make smart bets in real estate. The second is content. Uh, there's a lot of mental models if for a real estate investor to master before they get into real estate. Uh, should you allow uh, pets in your rentals? Well, that increases the quality of your tenant applicant pool, but it can also cause damages uh, to your property. Certain insurance covenants can be. So there's tons of like those little mental models, how to screen tenants, how to analyze cash flow, um, what type of capex risks, you know, uh, uh, foundation, roof, those types of things are acceptable and how do you spot them and avoid them or at least factor them into the purchase price. So content's the second core value prop. The third is tools. Uh, investors uh, need to be able to analyze deals and understand what cash flow looks like. They need to understand what a property might rent for. They need you know, leases and landlord forms to, for applications and, and, and managing properties. They need property management software if they intend to self-manage the, prop, the, the, the property. Uh, and they need accounting software to keep the books. And then last, investors need uh, professionals. So there are, uh, you know, an investor does not want to work with a regular agent to buy a, an investment property. They want to work with an investor specialist who understands that in this part of town, Airbnb is allowed, but they're voting on it next month. So you better be careful. You might want to get grandfathered in. And over here, you can rent by the room, which increases your cash flow. Um, but over here, there's a rule that says no more than three unrelated adults can be living together in that property. Um, and so this investor friendly uh, designation for professionals or for these professionals is really important, not just across agents, but also across lenders, as there are a lot of nuances for real estate investors in applying for that next loan and using the income from properties to apply for that short-term rental, 
income, for example, can be difficult to use to qualify for that next financing opportunity, but long-term rental income uh, is no problem and actually expands your uh, borrowing capabilities pretty dramatically for conventional loans. Same thing for property managers, insurance. So Bigger Pockets provides a marketplace for these professionals in addition to those pools that I described earlier. Scott, I was the CMO of Franklin Covey, the world's largest leadership development firm for a decade. That was the single best delivered value prop I've ever heard in my career. Nicely done. I am both inspired and horrified about rental income right now. Uh, I've interviewed Morgan Housel, obviously uh, 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 you know, an icon in the personal finance world with the book, The Psychology of Money. And he said something both in the book and on the podcast that just resonates in my mind about every 90 seconds. Loosely quoted, Morgan Housel said, too many people spend too much money buying things they don't want to impress people they don't like. And that just kind of haunts me daily. You know, you also have expertise. You've authored books, and your podcast obviously is a wealth-building, independence-creating passion of yours. What advice do you generally have for people who may or may not be at the level of financial stability or risk tolerance yet or education? Maybe they're all joining bigger pockets right now. Why not? What, what, what are some general principles you have learned and you're passionate about around building financial independence and, as you said, maybe breaking free from a wage-earning job? First off, I want to just uh, also uh, reiterate that I'm a huge fan of Morgan Housel as well. I love his book, The Psychology of Money. It's one of my favorites I've ever read in the industry of business and personal finance books. I actually read it on my honeymoon. That's how nerdy I am. Um, while my wife was reading, you know, a thriller uh, at, at the beach resort. So we're actually going to have Morgan Housel on our podcast in a few weeks, and I couldn't be more excited. That's We've been funny. trying to get him on for years. Um, uh, in terms of answering your question directly around financial independence, there are four pillar. There are four things you got to do in some combination if you want to build wealth. One is spend less. One is earn more. The third is invest, and the fourth is create. And I think what a lot of folks miss is that for a full time wage earner, which is most of Americans it's really hard to earn more, invest, or create. You're working full-time. It's really hard to create an asset or a business on the side while full-time entrepreneurs like yourself are spending all day with the, you know, similar mental abilities or you know, uh, uh, to go and pursue that business. It's hard to invest because you don't have any assets. And you're probably already optimized for income. right? If you could get a $30,000 pay increase, you'd take it. So it starts with frugality. And these levers change over time. As you amass that first 100000 for example, in liquidity, maybe it's time to change jobs and take something with a lower base salary but higher uh, upside on the equity or commissions front. Once you get a couple hundred thousand dollars, investing becomes much more important. And once you get close to financial independence, the ability to create and go all into entrepreneurship becomes um, a very readily accessible lever. And I think um, while those are not hard and fast rules and you'll find exceptions all over the place to those, I think that they are generally true and um, uh, folks struggle to acknowledge that and change those mindsets. We, you know, um, all along the spectrum, some people earn high incomes but never get ahead because they spend everything that comes in. And other people amass big portfolios and never re realize that hey, the whole point of investing the whole for, for, for a portfolio and being frugal for all those years was to spend the money that you produced. And it's time to lighten up and live a little bit. So that would be my my high level response to what your, your question. Scott, you have a wildly popular YouTube channel. There's not a person listening to this uh, uh, interview that isn't trying to build or should be trying to build their social influence, whether it's on TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, you name it, or should be building it bigger than it is. 
what are some of the tenets you've learned around building community on platforms, YouTube, the other social media tools? Anything you've made a mistake around that you've said, gosh, don't do this, I learned this the hard expensive way or it was 10,000 hours? Anything you might share, regardless of who's listening and the business they're in, around specifically your YouTube channel and other social media platforms that you've leveraged for the benefit of bigger pockets and the community of services you're providing? Look, I, I, I think that what people say, at least in our world, in the world of you know business, finance, education, um, what people say is much more important than the setup that they have, right? So we we do not invest heavily in studios or production or whatever. We want people who know what they're talking about. We'll pay them um, to go in and talk about it. And then we're going to edit it and put it out. And it's a continuous flow of iterative improvement. I believe in high repetitions. Someone who's doing a one piece of content a month is just not going to be successful over time. Someone who's doing three pieces of content a week has a very high probability of continuously improving and recognizing it and, and, and doing that. There's a high touch amount of feedback with the audience. You need to be invested in those comments, talking to people, um, uh, reading them, learning from them in real time, and not have a huge latency between when you produce content and when you begin get that feedback. Otherwise, the learning opportunities and continuous improvement is lost. And last, um, you know, cash flow is king. And um, you know, this you know, YouTube media content cannot be a loss leader for the business. They are standalone profit centers that bring in more advertising revenue than they cost to produce. Or we begin, and, and, and to protect that, um, we like to compensate people based on their production uh, in those channels and the amount of people that they're reaching, um, which I think is, is highly congruent with, with uh, hiring entrepreneurs to talk about real estate investing as well. Scott, talk about your own real estate journey, assuming you are an investor and you're applying the principles you teach others. What's the, what's the biggest mistake or the most costly mistake or the most valuable mistake you made in your own wealth creation strategy that you learned from? Maybe it was the biggest mistake, but it was the biggest learning. Anything you might share in a moment of vulnerability that others can say, wow, that was super helpful. I'm glad he shared that. I had a property manager run off with uh, two months of rent collection across my portfolio and all of the security deposits. I estimate that'll cost me thirty to $50,000. Um, when it's all said and done, it was two years ago, it's still kind of being settled. Um, so that that's one, uh, and that taught me the importance of you know. Uh, there's a saying on Bigger Pockets where if you think a hundred dollar an hour an electrician is expensive, try hiring a ten dollar an hour electrician. And I hired the ten dollar an hour property manager in this particular case. So I think that's the the lesson in a nutshell on that one. And the next one is I'm I'm probably going to lose a 100. I, I believe I have a high probability of losing 100 of my investment in a syndicated apartment deal that I got into two or three years ago. And what that tell, teaches me is I actually think that the syndicator did a good job with the thesis, uh, executed the plan well. We just got crushed from interest rates expanding and costs expanding and the new supply coming on the market. And I didn't see those things and neither, neither did the person putting together the deal. And there's a lesson to be learned there for me in real estate that um, there's nothing you can do if you're time constrained on a real estate deal. And so my portfolio by and large, thankfully, is financed with 30-year fixed-rate mortgages in my name at low rates, and I will continue to do that. And I've capitalized my overall personal financial positions so that I've never forced to sell, even in a disaster case scenario. Um, so that reinforces what I've done with most of my portfolio, but two hard lesson learns there. lessons learned there. Scott, this is a tough question. I'm going to beg you for an answer. 
recognizing that the number of circumstances is infinite, is there like a formula that you generally love to say, hey, th this is a good first deal. You know, always go into a duplex and live in half of it for a year or two and get your, get your feet wet as a landlord while they're paying your mortgage or, or never buy more than a four-unit apartment building for your... Is, are there any like... Are there any starter philosophies to get people to build their confidence, mitigate their risk? Anything in particular you like as a as a an incubator, a starter for someone? Yeah, look, an investment in real estate I think is a long term investment, at least the traditional long term rental, which is what most people want out of real estate investing. They want the long term passive income and wealth that it generates. And what is it fundamentally? It's a fund fundamentally it's a bet on appreciation of U.S. housing stock in excess of inflation, um, US housing stock and rents. And then when you target your specific market, it's a bet on that particular market. So all of my real estate is here in Denver, all the property that I own directly um, is here in Denver. And I know, and I'm very comfortable with the idea that over the next 30 years, I believe that those properties and the rents associated with them will appreciate at a faster than inflationary rate, three to 4% plus. I'm leveraged on that investment, which multiplies those returns. And I will only realize those returns if I can actually hold the property for that entire period of time. And I know that in any hold period, there will be significant increases in value and significant decreases in value. I will not get a linear 3 to 4% average return over that entire period. So it comes back down to personal financial capitalization. So it's first, you have to believe those things. And then second, your personal position has to be strong enough so that you're never forced to sell. Uh, otherwise, you destroy the the, the benefit of the, the fundamental benefit of long-term uh, real estate appreciation because you can never tell when those cycles are going to happen at the point of purchase. What's a mistake you see over and over again? Smart, well-intended people, and you say, "Wow, th th like th I see this over and over again. They didn't do this, or they didn't research that." Is there something that pops to mind immediately that if someone knew, they could say, "Well, I can avoid that. I'll just do that better." Or Research that more. HELOC. People use, take a HELOC out of their personal residence and then they use it to buy a rental property. And here's why that kills you, right? You buy a, uh, you put, take 60 grand out of, on a HELOC to buy a $300,000 rental property out of state. Um, the rental property produces $500 in cash flow. Oops, the HELOC has to be repaid. That's going to come at an interest rate, which today is very high, six, seven, eight percent. Plus, you got to pay back the principal. HELOC is a short term loan. So, I don't know what your definition of short term is, but the longest reasonable definition of short term is five years. Five year repayment on a $60,000 HELOC over 60 months is $1,000 a month. So that, that deal that you purchased to help advance your financial position is sucking 500 plus interest out of your pocketbook every single month on average for the next five years. And people then sometimes compound this with multiple of those. And so that leads to a tremendously stressful situation, which is not why I get into real estate. I get into real estate for each property to be additive and accretive to my, my position and make my life a little easier on average um, each time. You don't always get that right, but you have a really high probability of having problems and a very stressful experience if you're using a HELOC to finance the down payment on rental properties. Scott, what do you do really well? Like if you had to say, gosh, of all the people you know, through one or two or three connections, you do something better than everybody, either because of the, the lessons you've learned, the reps you've invested, the time you've put to research it. What's like your superpower, personally or professionally? Very good question. I, I think one thing that I 
uh, a discipline that I adhere to is I, I goal set with, you know, I, we, I'm, I'm very rigid about that. So I, I work with my, my, my wife once a quarter, we sit down we go somewhere beautiful, have our cup of coffee, feel great. And we update a little one page vision. Here's what we want our life to look like in a couple of years. You know, here's what we want to live. Here's what we want to be doing for fun. Here's what we want our relationships to be like. Um, then we translate that into quarter, like that's a three to five year, um, look forward. Then we translate that into quarterly and annual goals. And then every week on Sunday night, I review those and go through what do I need to do this week to continue advancing towards that. And, you know, the week gets away from me sometimes in the whirlwind, you know, there's always problems that come up in, in this journey, but I, because I'm, I constantly reset and refocus on that. I, I usually don't lose more than a week. Uh, in prog progressing kind of directly towards what I'm what I'm trying to achieve. So I, I think that's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's like a superpower, but it's just something that I, I've been fairly disciplined about for the last 10 years. The superpowers are usually the most simple, practical uh, uh, habits people have. How about an area of growth? Is there something that you struggle with that gets you in trouble? It could be on the personal side. Is there something that you're making progress on, but it's kind of your Achilles heel? And sometimes it's our strengths just overplayed, they become weaknesses. Um, I think that there's sometimes an obsession with with things. I think things through to every possible angle, um, the best possible case scenario, the worst possible case scenario, um, often lose sleep over that. Um, and you know, that, that bring, sometimes bring it home um, or take it home, take it home too late um, from there. So there's a shut, I have, to, I have to figure out a way to shut off after the end of a long day of work and that doesn't always happen. Scott, Bigger Pockets, in addition to being a real estate platform with tools and services and community, in many ways you're also a media company. You co-host a podcast and this YouTube channel. Would you just walk our listeners and viewers through some of those tentacles? Because not that I'm asking you to pitch your podcast or your YouTube channel, but I think it's instructive for entrepreneurs and leaders of companies to realize how important it is to have you know, a public relations digital communities, and other ways to promote their thought leadership so people can learn about their services. Talk about how you use some of these digital properties and platforms, not just to increase your community, but also as revenue generating um, centers as well. Yeah, well, well look, for, for us, you know, there, there's general, there's there's you know, when you think about strategy, it's it's specific to our business. Maybe I would do something differently if I was running another business. I don't know. I my entire career is here at Bigger Pockets, so everything is designed around our customers' journey. And real estate investors, before they buy their first property, spend a year or two obsessing over the decision. They might listen to you. You can go talk to a bunch of folks, and you will find over and over and over again. Yeah, I spent 250 to 500 hours researching and learning about this via podcast, watching videos, discussing things in forums, heading to meetups, reading books, uh, listening to audio, but you know, um, going through that. And that's what, because this is the highest stakes financial decision of their lives, right? You know, real estate's a risky business. I just told you I'm going to lose some money in a couple of cases. And almost everybody who's in this, uh, goes into this industry will at some point lose, lose money. Um, and you got to be really smart and careful and and, and learn before you do, you do this. Uh, we have also another saying that if you can either invest those 500 hours now up front before you buy your first deal, or you will invest them after you've bought that first deal in addition to getting um, uh, some very painful financial lessons at that point. So that's why we have the community and content piece, not necessarily because just to have top of funnel. It's a core part of the customer journey and people aren't sure if they wanna get into the business yet. 
at that point. So is that answering your question, Scott? Yeah, it is. The uh, reason I'm asking is, I think the higher up you are in the letterhead, right, as the, the C-suite, you may or may not understand the power of all of these social platforms and what your team should be uh, working on or investing on. I think you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, misnomers that the podcast market is explode or is you know is saturated. Yes, and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a podcast or perhaps you ought to have something like that. Are there any are there any media platforms that you were reticent to get into? And with more reps and more practice, you realized, gosh, I was wrong. I'm glad I did that. Or you did something that didn't work out and you pivoted. I guess I'm trying to also give um, C-suite leaders that may be a little arm's length from social media or YouTube channels. And they just need a little confidence to say, gosh, maybe I should be more involved in that. Yeah. And look, it's different for every industry for this. But I think you know, where I scratch my head is when I see somebody trying to get into some sort of educational content space. And they first say, okay, we're going to hire a bunch of employees. We're going to set up a really expensive studio. We're going to put in place all these crazy production things. And then we're going to put this thing out. I don't think you have any higher odds of success doing that than buying a $100 mic, recording something, and outsourcing development on Fiverr from a production standpoint. So that's the biggest mistake. For me, media, at least in our space, is about what you say and whether it resonates with people and continuously getting better every week at that um, and making sure you're responding to feedback and giving the audience what they want. It's a it's a, a parabolic growth curve, not a you know launch, not a big launch and a big splash with it. So every bet should be low stakes, high upside, long term, and consistent. You should apply it for a few quarters before you you figure it out, and you shouldn't spend a lot of money on. It. That that's kind of what I how I feel about it. Okay, I want you to give me some Nostradamus advice, recognizing that there's all kinds of legal disclaimers on what you should and shouldn't say, and I'm sure you're quite adept at not saying things you shouldn't say. Um, much of America is me, right? They're currently in a home. They have a 2.9% interest rate. They want to move to a bigger, better home, but for whatever reason, they're not willing to move from 3% to 8%. Oh, I can figure that out. And or what was X is now X plus because of the new um, you know, increase in housing cost. What's on the horizon? We watch the Fed. They haven't cut rates as of late yet. We think they might this year. Do you have any sort of like mid to long-term advice on what's going to happen with rates? What's going to happen with you know, the market in general? What would you say about that? Watch me be completely wrong on everything, but I will give you a direct answer that I believe is the base case for 2024 and heading into 2025. First, I do not think I think the I believe the Fed will do exactly what they say they're going to do. I think they're going to lower rates two to three times. There's a little bit less of a risk of at least one of those happening because of the January jobs report that just came out, and I think the federal funds rate is going to fall from 5.25 to four and a half. The 10-year Treasury is currently at 10 and a quarter. That's a really important metric in our industry for both mortgage rates and commercial debt uh, financing for commercial real estate properties like multifamily. Um, which are often financed through government agencies, just like Fannie Mae, um, called Freddie Mac. For one of them is, is Freddie Mac, for example. I believe the ten-year is going to continue climbing, and that is going to be a huge problem for the commercial sector, commercial real estate, specifically multifamily. I'm a huge bear on. We had a terrible year in 2023, where 20 to 30 percent of asset values are estimated to be wiped out on average. Uh, I think there's still a lot more room to go because cap rates are still lower than the debt financing you can get from Freddie Mac. 
And I don't believe that there's a good chance that that those interest rates are going to come down. So I think that cap rates are going to rise, which means prices are going to fall. And I think you got another 20 to 30% risk on average in the US in multifamily, um, like apartment complexes, for example. You also have 500, we have a 1.2 million multifamily units currently under construction in this country, 500,000 of which will be delivered in 2024. That is a record. 2023 was also a record. I think you have a strong chance of rents falling on a nationwide basis like they did in 2023, again in 2024, unless we get something that we're not expecting from household formation or income growth. Lower rents, rising expenses, uh, cap rates below interest rates spells disaster for that sector. And I think that that's going to create problems for banks, and it's going to flush a lot of generational wealth um, from investors who have been in that space. On the single family front, we have much more muted dynamics. As you point out, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons people buy uh, a single family home, right? Gener uh, generational wealth, uh, make family memories, good school districts. This is where they want to live. They like the view. There's only one reason people buy multifamily properties, which is for the income stream. So I think that from a single family perspective, is there's still demand. We have the lock-in effect that you just articulated, where people have low interest rate debt and do not want to swap that out for a higher um, uh, priced property. We do have supply coming online. So much less than the uh, multifamily space, there are 600,000 single families currently under construction uh, and fewer, uh, fewer deliveries that will come online in 2024. Um, but I think that will mute um, price reductions in single families. Furthermore, 50% of renters want to live in a single family rental property um, and 40% uh, do. So there's a demand for that. So I'm, I am optimistic or cautiously optimistic about single family and I'll include small multifamily like duplexes, triplexes and quadplexes, which are also priced and comped similarly to single families. In a, I think they'll be fine. Um, there'll be regional differences um, like everywhere, you know, I, I'm not particularly bullish on Denver, for example, in 2024 in that category, but I think there's going to be steep declines in the multifamily sector. And I think certain markets in the West and the South are going to get particularly hammered um, as rents decline, uh, interest rates potentially even rise for those folks. And then um, uh, so costs are skyrocketing for property taxes and insurance. Scott, I want to take a, a bit of a deeper dive on a couple of those topics in the next couple of minutes here, and we'll let you go. Um, I don't know how often you come to Salt Lake City but in the downtown metropolitan area, you can't drive 25 blocks in any direction and not see two or three apartment towers going up with you know 200 units. I mean, it's you look around and you think, this isn't sustainable. Yes, we needed housing a couple of years ago, but did we need 25,000 apartment units? I'm making the number up, but it just, it seems to me that that rental market is going to crater. I, I know there's not a lot of demand for, you know, there, there's, there's not a lot of supply for two and three and four million dollar homes in Salt Lake. But there is, can there possibly be enough demand for all these apartments? I'm guessing that the rental market is going to crater at some point because you have so much competition being overbuilt. I, I just told you, I think that apartment, multifamily apartment complexes in this country are going to reduce in value by 20 to 30 percent. That is a crash, right? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm saying I, I believe 2024, 2023 already saw that. I think 2024 will continue to see that. I think we're in the midst of a historic crash in multifamily apartment complex valuations. And I think it's really hard to point to anything that is going to offset that in the year 2024.
So I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And I agree of what, you know, another way to, to take all of the complex jargon I just spewed for the last five minutes and, uh, and simplify it is to say, look out your window and look at everything that's going up. That's what you're competing with how on a multifamily space. How will that impact someone like me that, you know, wants to buy a home and what was, you know, one million pre-pandemic is now, you know, literally two million. And what was two million is now three million. And you've got a home that has, you know, increased, you know, 50% in price and interest rates have, you know, almost tripled, not quite, but certainly doubled in a half. What do you think is the general outlook for people looking to upgrade their single family home? They're kind of stuck because of their low interest rate. Their own home has increased in value as well. Uh, maybe talk simply around what does that segment of the, of the house hunter look like? What's going to happen for us? Well, the, the big dynamic that's changed in the last two years is transaction volume has declined precipitously. So uh, in 2021, we had 20% more single family transactions than the historical average. In 2022, we were right on the money for the average because the first half of the year saw a ton of transactions and the second half saw a huge decline. And in 2023, we saw close to the historic low in terms of transaction volume. For 2024, I think all signs point to continued low transaction volume. And the short answer to your question is that person is going to have to hustle and save up a lot more cash and or accept a much higher payment to do that. And most people aren't going to do that, which is why they're not transacting on houses. They're not selling their current home and buying a new one. Does it make sense for someone to bite the bullet? They find a house they love. It's a little out of their reach. They let go of their you know 2.9% mortgage. They, they, they buy a home at 7.5%. They do that for a year or two. And then they refinance because rates are going to drop down to, you know, five and a half or six. Is that a fantasy for people? You hear that. You hear a lot of realtors giving you advice to do something like that. Is that a fantasy plan? I think I'm alone in believing Jay Powell, our Federal <laughs> Reserve chairman, and what he says he's going to do. I believe he's going to lower rates two or three times in 2024. And I believe he's going to sit there. And I think anybody who's guessing what's going to happen after that is guessing. So I don't, I would, I, you know, maybe they go down, maybe they go up, maybe they stay flat. I think the wisest course of action is to assume that they stay flat or go up uh, following that. There's a lot of reasons that long-term inflation may be here to stay. And we don't even need to have those long-term inflationary pressures to cause treasury rates and therefore mortgage and borrowing costs to go up long-term, right? The U.S. has $34 trillion in debt and brings in about six to seven trillion dollars in revenue each year. That's like a person who earns a $100,000 salary owning a $500,000 house. Not crazy, but as that gets higher, 600,000, 700,000, 800,000, you're a little bit less likely to pay it back. And so I think that there's lots of reasons to believe that you'll see the credit downgraded from, you know, we saw it downgraded a year or two ago, maybe just a bit by bit. I'm not expecting it to go down to like D, but if that continues, that, 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 you know, and, and, and the risk profile of U.S. Treasury debt goes up, that increases more mortgage costs and other costs. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be, um, uh, be cautious about whether rates will ever come back down from where they are right now. They're not out of whack historically. Uh, you know, and there was a 40-year period where they came down, and a lot of people learned a lot of lessons about financial planning and how safe bonds are, for example, from that. That may not be true for the next 20 or 30 years. Scott, on that point, remind everybody what the average 40-year mortgage interest rate was about six percent or so um i'll have to go and look at that but it's gone from like 18 percent in the 80s down to 
three percent in the late, you know, in the early 2020s. Yeah. So, or the first two, two, you know, 2020, 2021. So, you know, I, what the average is, I have to go and, and compute for you. But that, that's a, that's a, uh, there's nothing crazy about where we're at right now. If you look at a chart and zoom out, 50 yeah. years. Yeah, that was my point. Um, send us off with where do you see the real estate professional kind of industry flushing out this year? I mean, you've had these remarkable class action lawsuits around real estate commissions and such. And, you know, I, I, you see figures where you're going to lose close to half or more of real estate, you know, realtors and, and, and real estate professionals leave the industry. Uh, what do you see about that and, and what does that mean? Why do we care? What's the impact? Yeah, look, I think the biggest story for 2024 is not these lawsuits that, you know, have made the press recently around um, real estate commissions. I, my personal belief is that not much will change there over the long term. Um, and it will, if there is a change, it will be take several years in court to play out um, before there actually becomes industry impacts and groups like NAR fundamentally change what they're doing. Um, so that's one. The big story, I think, for 2024 for real estate professionals is a continuation of the theme we saw starting in 2022 and 2023, where transaction volume is down. I think transaction volume will be higher than in 2023, but it will not approach the long-term historical average. It will be a slow ramp over the next couple of years, unless we get this miraculous drop in interest rates that um, a number of folks in the industry are speculating or, in my opinion, potentially praying for um, in, in the space. So I think that agents will see a continuation of the the hard times they saw in 2023 in the back half of 2022. And I think the financing industry will be, will see a similar problem. They're even actually more exposed to the interest rate environment than the buy and sell side, because, you know, uh, 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 when a, when someone's borrowing, so, someone can refinance their property or use a loan to purchase a new acquisition. And right now, neither of those is happening. So loan origination dropped like 70%. Um, from the first half of 2022 into 20, into 2021. Um, so, you know, and I, I think that that's going to continue. Again, both of these are going to be better, or at least there's going to be more volume going on than 2023, but um, it will be a slow ramp. It's not it's not getting back to where it was a few years ago. It'll take, it'll take some time. Scott, thousands of people right now are going to biggerpockets.com. What should they do? How do they navigate it? Where should they start? What's the, what's the navigation look like for someone that's interested is it a subscription base? How does someone get started on it? Yeah, I think the first thing to do is listen to a couple of podcasts, maybe read a book or two that, that appeal to you and, and just kind of tease it out, right? Real estate's a, a journey. I just told you there's a couple hundred hours. Um, go learn about it. Think about it, whether it works for you. The bet is you, you got to assume that you're going to get a different income stream or and, and really a higher return than you would get in an alternative like the stock market over the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years in order to get into real estate, which is what I fundamentally believe. And you got to be comfortable with the mental models you're going to assume and the work you're going to do um, to go after that return and, and, and use leverage responsibly in pursuit of that, uh, that journey. So I would, I would just tease it out with some, with some content first and go watch a few YouTube videos, listen to a couple of podcasts. I think they're pretty good. I'm pretty biased. Um, and, but I, I spend... I probably spent a thousand to five thousand hours listening to them over the years, and I've learned a lot. Um, maybe go ask a question in the forums, but I'd start there. And then, um, as you're as you're thinking about moving towards a transaction, that's when it's time to go use um, uh, the Bigger Pockets website, meet an agent, uh, begin analyzing a couple of deals, and practicing you know running the cash flow numbers using our calculators. Scott Trench, CEO and President of Bigger Pockets. Thanks for your time today. Learned a lot and gave me a lot of introspection on what I should and shouldn't be doing differently. Remind us, send us off with the four things. You talked about um, spend less, earn more. Round us out. Spend less, earn more, 
invest and create and know that there's no right answer. You're going to have to use all four of those levers in some combination if you want to get wealthy, uh, or I think you should, I think you should use all four of those levers in some combination if you want to get wealthy and know that there are appropriate times for each of those levers. Um, and, it, and, uh, that's totally fine. You got to know when it's time to transition your focus though. Scott Trench, valuable conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-suite.